Last week, we looked at dispensationalism more particularly. So, bigger picture, there is a, a geopolitical uh, circumstance that has been unfolding now for six or seven weeks. Uh, it's the, uh, the violence that's unfolding in Israel, southern Israel in particular, and Gaza. And uh, so, that, that initiated this, right? We're, we're talking about these things in here because of that. But our concern is not a geopolitical concern. Our concern is a theological concern. Uh, it, it, because of the, the place of this, uh, this ideology, this theology called dispensationalism, because of the place of that in evangelicalism in America for the last hundred years, it has seeped into everything. Uh, so that, that most evangelicals unquestionably uh, or unquestioningly uh, have a certain view of the modern nation state of Israel and who they are to God and who they are to us and how we ought to relate to them. And uh, we don't believe, we, uh, those of us who, who our theology is best outlined and described in the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Catechisms, we do not believe that this modern nation state of Israel is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, uh, that God established it in a particular redemptive sense. Uh, that's, that's not what we believe, but rather than just saying we don't believe it or ignoring it altogether, what we wanted to do was come together for a few weeks, talk about where this view came from and what exactly this view is, dispensationalism, but then also explain what we believe is true. We don't want to just say that's not true and move on. We want to say, instead, this is what we believe Scripture teaches. So we've talked about systems of theology. Uh, our God is an orderly God, and therefore when He reveals Himself, that revelation is not chaos, but order. It has an order to it, a structure. Uh, our calling by the, the work of the Spirit in us and through us as we read His Word is to understand what that structure is. Every uh, attempt to do so in the history of the church, we refer to these attempts, if you will, to, to try and discover what that, that structure is, we refer to those as systematic theologies. Dispensationalism is one such systematic theology. Uh, now, I said something last week, and somebody came up and asked me a clarifying question, so I'm gonna, I want to revisit this week just for a minute to make sure I'm clear. We talked a lot about the history last week, a little bit about the history of dispensationalism, but a lot about the history of evangelicalism in America and how dispensationalism came to be so popular among evangelicals. And that is that in the late 19th century, early 20th century, uh, theological liberalism, which really took root in Germany, began to infiltrate the American church. Uh, and that led to, uh, to what we recognize as theological liberalism today, the denial that Scripture is the very Word of God, that it's authoritative, that it's inerrant, uh, the denial even that Jesus Christ was the eternal Son of God uh, in, a, in, a, in a real sense, not a metaphorical sense, uh, the denial that what He did on the cross was die in our place for our sins. Liberal theologians reject that idea. They say he was just setting a good example, showing us the ultimate expression of love by dying for us. Uh, and so that's liberal theology. There, was, there were two significant responses 
among those who saw the error and remained orthodox, and, and they were pushing back, fighting against this liberalism, this theological liberalism in the church. The first and greatest response, greatest in terms of, of size and effect, was fundamentalism. Uh, let's, let's whittle the faith down to some non-negotiables. Let's, let's give everything else up if we have to, but these are the things we will not let go of. There's a simplicity to that, right? Uh, the other response was a, a much more uh, robust theological response, what we refer to as, as uh, confessionalism. And that confessionalism was led in our tradition by a man named uh, J. Gresham Machen, uh, who's the founder of the denomination today known as the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the founder of the seminary known as Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. Uh, it was not as widely embraced as dispensationalism was, uh, but, uh, or, or fundamentalism was. Fundamentalism was a popular movement. Uh, and so here's what I want to clarify. Fundamentalism is a response to theological liberalism. And even though fundamentalism was a reductionist response, let's, let's really figure out what can't be negotiated, what we cannot uh, afford to give up, and let's cling to those things, and in so doing, we'll save the church. Uh, that is a response to theological liberalism, but fundamentalism is not a system of theology. They, they needed a system of theology, and the system of theology they latched onto was dispensationalism. We, we're not going to go into the why or any of that again, but there's a distinction. Fundamentalism and dispensationalism are not just two names for the same thing. One is a, a sort of, within the context of the church, sociological response, a historical response to liberalism. That response needed a theology, and so they looked around and found dispensationalism to be the theology that they believed would best serve the movement. So... I wanted to clarify that. Those are two different things. Not all dispensate well, all dispensationalists are fundamentalists, but not all fundamentalists are dispensationalists. So Venn diagram, lots of overlap, but not completely. Yes. Yes. So I think we, we can make those distinctions here in this room among fellow believers, but in the world we would, we would do the, the kingdom a disservice to be like, no, I'm not a fundamentalist, because we would be denying more than we need to in an actual uh, conversation. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you. Um, yeah, these terms that we're using here, I'm using in a historical context. Uh, the truth is most of us aren't fundamentalists according to the definition I'm using now. Uh, and I think there's a whole debate that could be had about whether we should accept the label of fundamentalist when it's given to us by the secular press or even the liberal church. Uh, but a lot of times those are not conversations worth having. Uh, to be honest with you, and some of you have heard me say this before, I don't consider myself an evangelical. 
based on the culture's definition of an evangelical today, right? I'm not a big fan of the term. I don't think it's particularly helpful. It's a, a, pla- or a, a what, what's the, the word? A, uh, um, not a plastic nose. A, what's that? A wax nose, thank you. It's a wax nose that can be shaped to fit whatever you want it to fit. So if we're going to have a conversation and use the label evangelical, we're going to have to have a longer conversation to even get started about what an evangelical is and whether or not I'm glad to be called one. Uh, and so now that said, if the person, if I'm on an airplane and the person next to me says, oh, so you're an evangelical, I'm probably not going to deny it. I'm probably going to qualify it, right? So we want to be careful with these labels, and I want to make sure that, that you hear what Graham said, because I think it's really key. It's important. We're using these terms in here in a historical context, uh, and they don't mean these, these same things to everybody anymore. Uh, they've shifted. Even the term evangelical shifted dramatically. Uh, there was a church here in Nashville probably 10 years ago, big non-denominational church that, uh, that decided that they were... Uh, no longer going to, to believe and teach that homosexuality is a sin. Uh, and they announced that to their congregation. It was big news. And the Tennesseans sent a reporter. And the reporter in the interview said, uh, so tell us how you decided not to be evangelical anymore. And the pastor said, what do you mean? We're, we're still evangelical. The problem with that is, there is no, no appointed board. Uh, there, is, there is no group that God has established that gets the authority to define evangelical. And so nobody can say to that guy, no, you're not. Yeah, sure he is. He's evangelical, according to whatever it is he means by evangelical. He's got a definition. It works for him, right? Now, I think that, that makes living together really difficult in society where we all get to define words however we want. Uh, some are worth arguing over, some aren't, and I really don't care to argue over evangelicalism. It's not a word I care to retain, because I think it's been a system that, that had this in the cradle. When it was conceived, it was broken, right? So anyways, that's a whole other series of lectures and classes. Uh, let's come back to uh, today. I recommended some books last week uh, that were dispensationalists describing themselves, Uh, And key works, right? I mean, these are definitional works that if you want to understand dispensationalism as they understand themselves, these are the books you start with. Uh, Dispensationalism by Charles Ryrie and Things to Come by J. Dwight Pentecost. Uh, I I actually learned of another this week. A friend of mine pointed me to um, to a, a podcast episode uh, some of you are familiar with Al Mohler. He's got a podcast called Thinking in Public. Uh, he's got multiple podcasts, so you want to make sure to get the right one. Thinking in Public is the name of the podcast. He does one episode where he interviews Daniel Hummel, uh, who is the author of a book called The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism. I thought it was excellent. Uh, the guy used to be a dispensationalist, uh, and he's a historian. And what he does, and I've got it here, the rise and fall of dispensationalism, how the evangelical battle over the end times shaped a nation. This is not a theology per se, it's a history, uh, where he's going to tell you this is where the dispensationalism came from, how it developed, how it became the juggernaut that it was, not just uh, among evangelicals, 
but in American culture. Did, I think I'm, I'm going to... Fairly certain I've got this right. Did you know that the best-selling book in English in the 1970s was the Bible? The second best-selling book in the English language in the 1970s, The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. And I said something I need to correct from last week. Last week I said that Hal Lindsey just, he just took his, his class notes from J. Dwight Pentecost and, and per, um, plagiarized those notes. There's a significant difference, and, and for the sake of Pentecost's reputation, I want to clear it up. He took Pentecost theology, and in the book, he said, here's all the things that are happening in current events that means that Jesus is coming back now. Here it is. It's arrived. Jesus, Jesus is coming back right now, and we can tell that he's coming back right now because of all the current events, right? That's not something Pentecost did in his own work, uh, but, uh, but Hal Lindsey did so. And second best-selling book in the English language in the 1970s, that's not an evangelical phenomenon. Not in the 1970s, it's not. More people have to be behind that book for it to become the second best-selling book. Yes, the author's name of the rise and fall of dispensationalism is Daniel Hummel, H-U-M-M-E-L. Now listen, I'm going to warn you, this is not the Left Behind series, okay? It's not entertaining in a conventional sense. This is a historian working. Uh, so you've really got to want to know the material. I'm not telling you he's boring or he's not a good writer. I'm just saying this is not popular literature. Uh, I don't know how quickly they're coming out with a paperback for mass media, okay? But if you want to know the, the history of dispensationalism and how it progressed and how it came to be so influential in America, and not only how it became, but in what sense did it become influential? How do we think today because of how this took root and why all of the sudden at its height, did it collapse, and, and it's very nearly disappeared, uh, at least from the academy. What happened? He goes through all that. Uh, the, uh, the forward is by Mark Knoll, N-O-L-L, who is no mean church historian himself. Uh, I've looked through this. I've not read it yet. I heard the interview, uh, and that combined with what I've, I've looked at in the book, and uh, Mark Knoll's forward have all convinced me it's going to be an excellent book and I can't wait to read it. So now you know what kind of nerd I am. You already knew. Okay, so dispensationalism. Quick review of dispensationalism. Uh, if, if you didn't hear last week's lesson, you'll have to go back and listen to that. I can't possibly do all of that again today, right? But I also want to get a running start at what we're going to talk about. Here is the fundamental question or series of questions we're dealing with. Is the modern nation-state of Israel the fulfillment of prophecy? Is it a part of God's unfolding redemptive plan in a particular way? When the Bible talks about Israel, who is it talking about? Now, dispensationalism answers those questions by saying, yes, the, the modern nation-state of Israel is a very particular fulfillment of prophecy and the unfolding of God's redemptive work in history. Yes, God is sovereign over all things. We can all agree that the modern nation-state of Israel was established because God ordained it. 
But God has ordained all things that come to pass. The dispensationalists go further. They say, no, God told us it was going to happen and that he would do it for a particular redemptive purpose. It's a part of the work of salvation he's doing in the world. Uh, And they also are adamant that Israel in Scripture only refers to the Jewish people. Now, I don't mean they deny that it also, Jacob's name was Israel, and some of the, the ways we looked at a few weeks ago that Israel's used, but they absolutely deny that the, the name, the label Israel applied to a people refers to anyone else in Scripture but the Jewish people. In fact, one of the books that I brought last week, uh, Charles Ryrie's book, I think it was Ryrie, I was reading from that and Pentecost uh, quite a bit last week, um, I think it was Ryrie, though. Ryrie goes on in detail about the absolute necessity of rejecting any other meaning for the the name Israel than the Jewish people. And then he quotes us, uh, Reformed theologians, teaching that the name Israel does not apply only to the Jewish people. And the critique is singular. There's one critique of us. And that is that we have not read it literally. It says Israel, it means Israel, and you can't make Israel mean whatever you want to make it mean. It has to mean the Jewish people. Now, we would would answer that, and that's what we're going to begin transitioning into today is explaining our perspective, the, the interpretive principles that we bring to the text, and how it is that we understand what God's Word says Uh, Yes, there are things that the church has argued about throughout history, things that in Scripture can be difficult to understand, but that doesn't mean that all views are valid. Every view has the responsibility of coming to God's Word and proving itself from God's Word. Uh, And so the dispensationalists, we talked about last week, not only deny that anyone belongs to Israel except the Jewish people, but they then insist that the church is a separate people of God so that different promises have been made which will receive different fulfillments and that runs through eternity. So with that in mind, they are absolutely inclined to see the modern nation state of Israel as the particular people of God today. Uh, Now, you think about the implications for that. If they are right then how are we to relate to the modern nation state of Israel, right? Now, I find it, the claim, very confusing because if you know the history of the establishment of the modern nation state of Israel, uh, it seems like an odd way for God to work redemptively, right? When you see the people of Israel come back from Babylon, for example, in Ezra and Nehemiah, God is the one who establishes it. He establishes it. Of course, he uses, uh, you know, in in that case, uh, the Persians and particularly Cyrus. But the people, he expects to be holy. I mean, this is what so much of Ezra and Nehemiah are about. We, We say that Ezra is about rebuilding the temple, Nehemiah is about rebuilding the walls. Yes. That's what's happening uh, in, in large part as they go back into the land and they attempt to rebuild Jerusalem. But running throughout all of the narrative of Ezra and Nehemiah 
is a reiteration of the law and a call to holiness and the description of the people failing in that call to holiness and the fear that arises on the part of the people because they believe that they're going to be taken out of the land again for not following the law. So there's a recommitment to the law, which comes after the rereading of the law. I mean, there's, they are heavily focused in Ezra and Nehemiah on the law and keeping the law. That's not what happened in 1948. In 1948, the founders of the modern nation-state of Israel were atheists and socialists. And, I think an argument can be made, in some instances, terrorists. They, they didn't come in with their hands folded, engage in some really slick politics, get a land for themselves that they went in, it was empty, and they peacefully occupied it. And then those mean Arabs came in and attacked them. If that's the narrative in your head of the history of the late 1940s and the establishment of Israel, I would strongly encourage you just to read the Wikipedia page or go find a good book by somebody who's been peer, uh, uh, what's the word, peer reviewed, uh, right? Find a good resource or read both sides, right? Because I'm sure nobody is entirely happy with any one story. But you're not going to get very far into that research at all, and you're going to find out it is a nasty bloody history, and those that were establishing that nation rejected God and were in rebellion against God, right? It's difficult to see how that's supposed to be the fulfillment of prophecy as God gloriously reestablishes his people in the world, right? So, uh, the people of Israel are demonstrably in Scripture, not just Jewish people. And you don't even have to get to the New Testament to know that. Man, it comes right up at the very beginning. So uh, I, I'm not going to go into a full-blown lesson or series of lessons on covenant theology. I'm going to give you a quick outline, and then we're going to start looking at some Scripture. Uh, in dispensationalism, their, their architecture is periods of time that are referred to as dispensations, of which typically they say there are seven. We're in the sixth one right now. It will end when Jesus comes back, somehow, sort of. There's this seven-year period at the end of all of that where he comes back mostly, but then comes back entirely. Then there's another, there's a thousand-year reign after that, a, a millennial reign, literal physical reign on earth. Uh, that millennium is the seventh dispensation. And we talked about this last week. They wrestle with one another even over how to define a dispensation. Um, <clears throat> and so they, they also, we talked about last week, have a tendency to read uh, the, the most difficult parts of Scripture. Uh, scripture is made up of different kinds of literature, right? There's poetry, there's narrative, there's teaching. Uh, you know, we, we've got all kinds of history, prophecy, all kinds of different kinds of literature in Scripture. Uh, the most difficult literature is, uh, is a, it, it really falls, I think, under the, the bigger umbrella of prophecy, but is what we call apocalyptic. Uh, it's literature that describes the work of God in the world in cataclysmic images. Uh, Dispensationalism goes to those passages first. 
develops an understanding of what they call the end times. And from that understanding of the end times, their commitment to Israel and the church being separate peoples of God and their determination to read everything they can as literally as they can, they go back and interpret the rest of Scripture. The uh, covenantal theology sees rather that all of God's revelation is structured according to covenant. Uh, this is a biblical word, right, uh, that, that seems to be given to us by Scripture as a structure, right? We move, when we move through the Old Testament narrative, we, we very intentionally, the text moves us from one covenant to the next, and it relates these covenants to one another, Right? Are you okay? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Got it. Um, they, scripture relates these covenants to one another. And so as we ourselves read Scripture, we work out of our understanding of these covenants, and particularly uh, starting with the covenant that God made with Adam and Eve in the garden. In this covenant, which sometimes is called the covenant of works, uh, sometimes it's called the covenant of creation, sometimes it's the covenant of life, those all refer to the same thing, just different ways to refer to it. Uh, in this covenant, God gives commands, stipulations we call them, to Adam and Eve, uh, that they would uh, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and that they would eat of all of the trees in the garden, all of the fruit in the garden, that they would tend and keep the garden, but that there's this one tree they're not allowed to eat from. Uh, those are the, the terms of the covenant, if you will. If they will obey the terms, the stipulations, they will gain eternal life. But if they break the covenant, if they disobey God, then they will die. That's the covenant made in the garden. Now, we get parts of that in Genesis 1 through 3. But other parts of what I just described to you, we find out later in Scripture. So if you just go look at Genesis 1 through 3, for example, you won't find the word covenant. The Later, though, in, uh, in the prophets, they say of Israel, like Adam, they transgressed the covenant, right? Different attempts to try and make that verse go away on the part of those who don't agree with us, but that's, ironically, the plain, literal reading of the text. So... Um, <clears throat> You've got this, and of course we know that Adam failed. He sinned. Uh, there's one more element that we know is true of all of that, and that is that Adam was not only acting on his own behalf, but that he had been appointed by God as a representative for all of his descendants. Paul tells us this very clearly in Romans. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12, right? You can read through the, the end of chapter 7 there in Romans, or chapter 5 in Romans, um, to get more about that. Because Adam broke the covenant, death came to Adam and all of his offspring. Yeah, it came immediately spiritually. That is, God, who is the source of life, cut fellowship. And then physical death followed eventually. And that's the state of things today. Every single human being that is born is born with Adam as their covenant head. They belong to the covenant of works, and they are under the curse of the covenant of works. 
What I'm teaching you here is a doctrine called original sin, right? It's not, when we talk about original sin, we're not talking just about the sin Adam committed in the garden. That was the original sin. The doctrine of original sin is that all of us are sinners in Adam. So, as sinners, under the curse of that covenant, we are, under, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, Paul says in Ephesians. And we are in need of salvation. The judgment we're under is just. If God never saves a single person, God remains perfectly just. But God has not done that. God has established a new covenant. We call this the covenant of grace. In the covenant of grace, God has promised to deliver us from the wrath and curse that we deserve in the covenant of works. And at the very center of both covenants is Jesus Christ. Adam was named our representative. And if you're reasonable, and that's the first time you've heard it, you say, well, I didn't pick him as my representative. How is it that Adam got to represent me and I didn't get a say-so? And my two answers to that are, first of all, God picked the best representative. There's nobody else. If I was in Adam's shoes, I would not have done as well. Nobody else in history, God gave us the best representative available, right? We weren't cheated in the representative that he chose. But much more to the point, God has now chosen another representative. And he didn't ask your permission for that one either. But this time it's good news. Because everything that this representative does, we get the credit for. We get the blessing for what he's done. We got a curse from Adam. We get blessing from Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the covenant head in the covenant of grace. And listen, this is what he does. He comes... And he takes the curse of the covenant of works for us. The penalty was death, and every one of us will serve it unless somebody serves it for us. And not just anybody can serve it for you. I can't serve it for you, and you can't serve it for me. We need someone to serve the penalty in our place that is qualified. And only then will the curse be removed. But not only that, if all that happens is the curse is removed from the covenant of works... What's the problem? We're back to where we started. We're just Adam and Eve in the garden, innocent, but we've not yet established ourselves in righteousness. Christ not only removes the curse, but because he came and lived a perfect, sinless life, his righteousness is also credited to us. So it's what we call the great exchange. Our guilt, sin, and curse are given to Christ and he takes them away. Christ's righteousness is given to us, and we therefore are declared righteous before God. Now, <clears throat> we know that we're not righteous. Not, not every day, right? We're not, not in our everyday lives. We still struggle with sin. Legally, we've been declared righteous before God because Christ is righteous, and he is our representative. God is making our personal righteousness a reality. We call that process sanctification. And he's going to finish it one day, and we call that glorification, right? This is covenant theology. Christ and the cross stand at the center as an answer and a solution for the covenant of works, which brings death and the curse, and it gives to those who will trust in Jesus Christ and repent of their sins life and eternity in the covenant of grace. Okay? I know that was fast. 
You'll have to go back and listen to the recording if you want to hear it again. The question then that's raised in this context is, who is Israel? We're going to come back to the question of whether or not the modern nation state of Israel is a specific fulfillment of prophecy in God's redemptive plan. But today I want to wrestle, begin at least wrestling, with this question of who is Israel. Is Israel only the ethnic Jews, or is Israel some greater group of people? Now, here's problem number one. Go to Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis 15, so in Genesis 12, God came to Abraham and said, I'm going to make a covenant with you. In Genesis 15, he comes and he cuts that covenant. And in cutting that covenant, and actually, let's go back to 12, Genesis 12, in coming and promising that he's going to make a covenant, look at what God says will be true of that covenant. The Abrahamic covenant, right? It, within dispensationalism, the Abrahamic covenant is a national covenant for the Jewish people. Chapter 12, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, these verses deserve careful unpacking, but one of the nice things is Paul actually interpreted them for us already. He says that the gospel was preached to Abraham, and then he quotes those verses, right? So when we read here in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, that in Abraham all the families of the earth will be blessed, and that's the gospel, what we know and what Paul tells us is that Christ is the very one in whom the promises made to Abraham will come to fruition, We've talked about this in here before. In the New Testament, do you recall passages where we, that is, anyone who will believe, is given the assurance that they are sons of Abraham? We do. In the New Testament, Paul, Peter, they are concerned to communicate to us that we are the offspring of Abraham. And I've said it in here before. Who cares? What a weird thing to tell us. How bizarre to tell me, a Gentile in the 21st century, take heart, you belong to Abraham. I have nothing in common with Abraham. Nothing. We're not in the same time. We're not in the same place. We're not in the same culture. We don't speak the same language. How in the world do I derive comfort from being a, a child of Abraham? And the answer is this, that the promises of the Abrahamic covenant were made to Abraham and his offspring. <clears throat> Period. What's left then except to answer the question, who are the offspring of Abraham? So we're going to look at two passages Let's look at Romans 9 first. I think we may have looked at this 
at some point in our study. I think it was the first week. I want to walk through this one really quickly, and then we're going to look at Ephesians 2, and then we're going to be out of time. In fact, we're going to be late probably, but we're going to move quickly. In Romans chapter 9, let me tell you, Romans is a letter that Paul writes to the Christians in Rome. He hasn't visited them. He didn't plant this church. He's on his way to visit them, and from them, he wants to go on to Spain to share the gospel. He wants to go do missions work in Spain. He needs to fundraise, and as he comes through Rome, he's hoping that the church in Rome will support him and maybe even serve as a base out of which to operate. So, But they, he's never been there before. They've, you know, There's probably people there who know Paul, have known him in his ministry in Asia Minor and Greece, but the church doesn't know Paul. Romans, the book, is a letter written from Paul to that church to introduce himself and particularly to introduce his gospel. And so the book of Romans unfolds. There's a reason why we used to, I say used to, somebody probably still does, refers to it as the Romans Road. That series of verses from Romans that will take you through the the bad news and the good news of salvation. There's a reason that it works so well. It even works fairly chronologically in the book. It's because that's what Paul's doing. He starts with the bad news, chapters 1 through 3, and in three transitions to the good news and begins to tell us. So he tells us who we are and what we deserve and how it's absolute. It's every Gentile and every Jew, right? Uh, And so he begins to, to talk about our problem, which is sin and rebellion against God. And then he begins to tell us the good news of what God has done in response and how he's saving us. That carries him all the way up through that absolute pinnacle of a chapter in Scripture, Romans chapter 8. Uh, that, that ends with this crescendo. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And then we, we get to what most theologians and Bible scholars call a parenthetical section of the book. Paul's done. He's done laying out the problem. He's done laying out the, the truth about who God is and who Christ is and what Christ has done and what that means for us now and what it means for us in the future. He's laid all of that out And now he anticipates a question from his audience, particularly his audience in Rome, in the church, that is not Jewish. And this is the the problem he anticipates. Paul, that sounds great. But God expressed all kinds of love and made all kinds of promises to the Jewish people, and they're all dying and going to hell because they rejected Christ. And so why wouldn't we believe that God would reject us? God wasn't faithful to Israel, will he be faithful to us? Paul takes that question up in chapter 9, and his answer is this. His answer is, you've misidentified Israel. God was not faithless to Israel. Everyone who belongs to Israel will be saved. Because Israel, Paul says, is not an ethnic people, it's a spiritual people. Look at how he says this. So I'm going to pick up in verse 6. This verse 6 should make sense in light of what I just said. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. When he says the word, he means the promises. It's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Man, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? I mean, you don't need a seminary degree to see that Paul is saying ethnic descent from Jacob doesn't make you a member of Israel. 
It's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham, because they are, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now, what other offspring did Abraham have? I thought Isaac was his only son, his beloved. He had Ishmael, who was the firstborn. We're going to see that multiple times, right? And then Isaac here, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Paul doesn't go on uh, immediately uh, in in the, the list here. He'll get to it in a second. But then Isaac has two kids, Jacob and Esau. Which one's born first? Is Esau the one the promise comes through? It's not. Jacob is, because Jacob was really a much better person. <laughs> right? Wrong. You go back and read Jacob's story, and you're hard-pressed to find much to like about the man. Right? Uh, it, there's nothing in the narrative that gives you reason to believe that God just couldn't wait till Jacob was born because he was going to be such a great guy. Jacob is the second born, and... Uh, and Jacob is the one through whom the promises are coming. Is Ishmael a child of Abraham? In fact, he's circumcised. He's, he's received the mark of the covenant, and he's not the one through whom the promise is coming. Is Esau a member of the covenant? He's born to Jacob, I mean, he, or to, uh, to Isaac. This is even closer, right? Because you can say the promise is coming through Abraham, but there can only be one seed of Abraham through whom the promise is coming. But now through that seed, shouldn't all of the kids qualify? No. Esau is rejected. Now, Paul's going to go on to say this. Let's look back at the text. Verse 8. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. That is a spiritual people. It's the children of promise, not the children of the flesh, that are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I'll return, and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. So, who are the children of Abraham? I absolutely cannot come to any other conclusion than that the children of Abraham are the children of promise and not the children of descent. Right? Let's, uh, let's very quickly, I'm going to start this, and then we'll finish it next week. Look at Ephesians 2. In the event that maybe we're just completely misreading Paul in Romans 9, you know, we're, we're Calvinists, we love Romans 9. Look at Paul in Ephesians 2. We're going to start in verse 11. The situation is the church at Ephesus has Jews and Gentiles in it, and those Jews... Uh, have been denigrating the Gentiles because they are not circumcised. Of course, since the finished work of Christ, circumcision is not the sign. Paul's been teaching this in the New Testament. Uh, circumcision is no longer required. There's still a sign of the Abrahamic covenant, but that sign is baptism. 
Paul says this to the Gentiles in the church at Ephesus. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh... Now, why would he say in the flesh? Because sometimes the word Gentiles refers to unbelievers. You see, just like the children of Abraham are a spiritual people, Gentiles are a spiritual people. In the context of God's revelation... A Gentile ultimately is one who rebels against God and does not belong to his people. Remember, he says, at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. That's a, Paul's being pretty sarcastic here in this next line. He says, which is made in the flesh by hands. So the Jews in the church at Ephesus are being critical of the Gentiles in the church at Ephesus because they have not received circumcision. And Paul says to the Gentiles, listen, remember, remember those of you who are Gentiles according to the flesh, those of you who are called the uncircumcision, it was an ugly thing that the Jewish members of the church were calling the Gentiles the uncircumcision. Remember that the circumcision, it sounds like such a strange thing to us. It's so foreign. They actually called themselves this. This isn't Paul using these words randomly. Those who were true Jews belonged to the circumcision. This is how they referred to themselves. Those Gentiles who refused to receive circumcision, they're the uncircumcised. Paul says, listen, their circumcision is made by hands. It's of no value. Remember, he says, that you were at that time, that is before Christ, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. Who who are the both here? Jews and Gentiles in Christ. Made us both one. One. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the laws of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body. Listen, catch that, pay attention to that. Reconcile us both to God in one body, not two peoples. Not an Israel that is ethnic and a church that is Gentile, but in one body. Through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, Gentiles. And peace to those who were near, Jews. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, listen, remember, what did he say about them a second ago? He said that we were... We Gentiles were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world, he says, 
So then, chapter, or verse 19, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. I'm not doing fancy theology up here, right? I'm just reading it. I'm reading it plainly. This is what Paul says. This isn't apocalyptic literature. It's not deeply symbolic. He's telling us straight up the truth about who we were and who we are. And he relates it to Israel. God is saving one people for himself throughout all of redemptive history, and that people is called Israel. And do you know why we're called Israel? Because the one in whom we are being saved is Israel. Jesus Christ is true Israel. And all those who are in him are therefore Israel. Reconciling us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, that is Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. All of, of the, the things that weren't true of us are true of us now. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, singular, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Listen, I, I said this last week as I introduced dispensationalism. Their, their stark contrast between Israel and the church is a thread that when you begin to tug on it and you pull, completely unravels the entire system. It is predicated on the distinction between Israel and the church. And I, I feel confident that with two passages of Scripture covered in about 20 minutes, we completely pulled the thread. You cannot sustain biblically that these are two separate peoples receiving separate promises and according to classical dispensationalism, never the twain shall meet. It's completely antithetical to God's word. It's not what he's revealed that he's doing. Now, we're over time. Why is this so important? Why are we hitting this so hard? Because it is dispensationalism that has taught evangelicalism and our broader culture that the modern nation state of Israel are the very people of God, uh, and therefore we are to have a certain posture towards them. And if it's the dispensationalists that taught us that, and their system is bankrupt, it is unbiblical, then we have every warrant to go back and reevaluate the claims they've made about the modern nation state of Israel. And that's where we'll pick up, not next week, but the week after that. Uh, next week we'll be talking about vision, uh, the, the, the coming year for the church, coming several years as a matter of fact. So let me pray for us.